VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, May the 13th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonce King is producing this Come On With It edition of Open Line on this glorious Friday. So if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Okay, so... Beautiful blue sky here in the metro region this morning, and yesterday, absolute beauty. And I did have the window open, which I'm likely to do throughout the entirety of the summer, but boy, oh boy, feet were frozen when I woke up to close the window at around 2 o'clock this morning. But some record highs hit, and this is coming from a tweet I saw from NTV Chief Meteorologist Eddie Shear. Out on Terra Nova, it hit 24.7 yesterday. The old record was 21.1 back in 2013. At Gander International, just about. It was 21.9 degrees. The record back in uh, 1989 was 22 degrees. Great Cove, 19.1. Former record, 17.6, 2012. So, beautiful day in most of the province. Hope for the same for the weekend. You also heard Brian Medora mention in the newscast that the Outer Ring Road is going to be closed Sunday from 7 to 7 a.m. to p.m. to clean up the old grout. So last year there was a huge amount of garbage taken both in May and October. And they point to the fact that much of it comes from vehicles headed towards Robin Hood Bay to dump off whatever they got. You know, the police will tell you that you have to secure your load, and everybody knows it to be true. And certainly a lot of the garbage that you find in the ditches and in the median have come from a vehicle headed to the dump. Maybe, just maybe, in an effort to encourage people to make sure they secure their load... Upon arrival at Robin Hood Bay, if your load is unsecured, maybe we just drop you a ticket as you're heading into the dumping grounds. What do you think? All right, big win for the Growlers last night at Mary Brown Center. They went 5-1 to send the series back to Reading, Pennsylvania for games 6 and 7 over the weekend. Still a long road ahead, but that's a nice bounce-back victory for the Growlers. 5-1, good stuff. Also, on the hockey front, Dawson Mercer and Team Canada kick off their World Men's Ice Hockey Championships today in Finland. They got uh, Germany first. I think it's 2.30 local or island time is game time. So good luck to Dawson. And the boys, and good luck and have a blast to everyone participating in the first ever Skoden Classic. It's an all-female hockey tournament taking place here in the city. Kicked off yesterday, as a matter of fact, at Capital Hyundai Arena. Here in town, there's eight teams from four different clubs. They actually have visitors from Saint-Pierre and Miquelon. The player age range, pretty sick, pretty severe, 13 to 70. <laughs> so that's going to be a fantastic event. So good luck to all hands playing in that one. Quick one. want to say good morning, congratulations, good luck to Joel Kratz. Joel is participating in the World Junior Championships. He was supposed to be on Team Canada last year when the event got cancelled, but now representing Team Nova Scotia. He's from Lab City. They're off to the Worlds. So that happens next week in Sweden. So good luck and congratulations, Joel only the second player from the province to participate as member of Team Canada in the Worlds twice. The other one, Guju. Not bad. Good luck. Go get him. And Jay Miller. Do you know who Jay Miller is? He's a baseball player from Cornerbrook. He's been chasing his baseball dreams for years. He left home a few years ago to play in Sudbury. Then he was down in North Carolina playing ball. And he's signed a letter of intent to play at University of North Carolina, Greensboro. So not a lot of baseball players from the province have had that kind of opportunity. And we've produced some fine ball players. I mean, just look at what came out of Cornerbrook. You know, lefty Frankie Humber, Darren Colburn, one of the greatest athletes in the province's history, and lots of great ball players from around the province. But those two come to mind when we're talking about Cornerbrook. So good luck and congratulations 
to Jay Miller. All right. I don't know if you watch much soccer. One of the greatest sporting events in the world is the FA Cup. It's not just teams from the Premiership get to play, but they open it up to all hands throughout uh, English football. Back in 2006, Liverpool beat West Ham United in penalties. It's referred to as the Girard final. Steven Girard at the time, Liverpool's number eight, representing the Reds, arguably one of the best midfielders of the day. A half volley from about 35 yards with a few minutes left in normal time to send it off to overtime, eventually into penalties, and Liverpool beats West Ham United in the Girard final, 2006. I like that one. Okay, let's keep rolling here. All right, talking a little bit about public transit yesterday, and I know it becomes pretty much a towny type of conversation. I totally get that. But there's monies available up along federally in pandemic support for recovery for transit problems due to the pandemic. There's a lot of cash available, and our cut could be somewhere in the neighborhood of $4.1 million. The only problem is, so the city of St. John's, of course, and all of us subsidizing Metrobus, they will have a massive... uh, explosion in the amount of money it costs to fuel the buses. And it's going to have a revenue shortfall in the neighborhood of $1.4 million. We know that the funding announcement was secured the other day to expand ridership on Metro Bus, so youth are receiving youth services here in the province, seniors on uh, income support, and everyone else on income support, so ridership will indeed go up. The trick here is that the city needs the province to apply for the funding. So if it's sitting there, there's $750 million in this emergency federal support, very much like the Canada Infrastructure, Pro- Infrastructure Program, based on the formula for access to money. So hopefully the city can encourage and convince the province to apply for money that's sitting there for this exact purpose. So we'll see what becomes of it. And I also mentioned, you know, yes, it's a metro, town and conversation, public transit for the most part. But with all the issues that we're facing, everybody knows what I'm talking about, what does it look like? What's the possibility for different regionals, different regions have a hub and then the various spokes for some public transport? It just seems to me like there's something more can be done on that front. Far too often we just throw our hands in the air and say, well, it, the population is too sparsely distributed around the whatever peninsula. Well, maybe, just maybe, there's a way to do a little better on that front. You want to talk about it? We can do it. And... In the world of, you know, so, so support for Metrobus public transit, and a variety of industries are out there looking for subsidies and tax breaks, support from the provincial or the federal government. And one such industry here in this province that is struggling mightily are the farms. And again, the stark contrast between certain individuals that email me frequently, please keep it coming, open, open line at feosim.com, talking about support for the oil industry. All right. And then at the exact same time, telling me if your business model doesn't work in agriculture, too bad about you. I just don't understand that thought process. Subsidize the hugely profitable multinationals, but not the locally owned and operated farms that produce our food. So the farms are struggling. The explosion in the cost of fuel, feed, and fertilizer is possibly going to cripple some of these operations. And that will have a ripple effect that will just hammer us. So whatever sort of support they may need, whether it be on fuel in particular, okay, like, I get it. We are really not doing very well financially. And people will say that we're broken. Yes, we're borrowing an exorbitant amount of money each and every year. But can you just imagine the issues surrounding food security, reliability of supply? We import 90% of what we consume. And anybody thinks it's a good idea that a farm goes upside down? 
I don't know how that adds up in some people's mind, but fertilizer's up 30 or 85%. Just last week, the price of feed went up 35% in one week. So whatever can be done, and if you want to talk about it, and of course, whether it be the traditional farming and organic farming, and what some alternatives may be, and what you think the government can or should do, or if you're a farmer, we had a dairy farmer from the West Coast call the show last week, good conversation, and I see the story today is uh, Crosby Williams and his dairy farm operation, which has been open for decades out in the ghoul, so if you want to take on anything in the agricultural world, we'd enjoy that chat this morning. Okay. Also, part of the news yesterday, and the reaction is, I think, predictable, is when the province decides to strike yet another task force. And some are absolutely required, some maybe not. But when we look down the road, 19 years from now, in 2041, in the expiration of the contract at the Upper Churchill, I don't know very many people, including myself, that have a real firm grip, grasp on what happens in 2041. Now we know the ownership stake. It's well understood here. CFLCO owns the lion's share, 65.8%, 34.2% owned by Hydro-Quebec. But what are the exact implications of the, 54, or the 5,428 megawatts generated at the Upper Churchill? So a 12-person expert panel, and people don't like the word expert being thrown around, but some pretty heavy hitter names on that particular list. Various backgrounds, law, hydroelectric projects, economics. Even if we just have a public debate based on some actual details about what 2041 looks like, maximize our opportunities financially, the panel is not set uh, to be commercial, but of course their findings will lead to some commercial negotiations. The problem that many people have, of course, is any sort of fractured relationship, a potentially toxic relationship, the province has had with Hydro-Quebec. I get it. But when Hydro-Quebec owns the transmission lines, inevitably there's going to have to be some working relationship with Hydro-Quebec, and the province of Quebec. What that looks like, I don't know. You know, people will hold their breath and hope that there's not some sort of sellout, given our dire financial situation here, provincially, provincial government speaking, but we really have to know what's going on, right? Do you understand what 2041 implies? I don't, necessarily. So I think that that's an important piece of work. And yes, there is going to be some discussion, conversation, negotiation with Hydro-Quebec. It's inevitable. They're the minority owner. They own the transmission lines. So 5,428 megawatts is no good if it's stranded. And you can't get the power out of there. Anyway, you want to take that on. And don't look now, but another report coming in regarding the future of the Muscat Falls project. First power, maybe at least minimum a year away. They've identified some new defects in the software that operates the Labrador Island Link. And yeah, here we go again. You know... Okay, a software glitch, but this has been going on forever. And now new defects have been, been identified. We already have to service the debt associated with the project. So the question for me would be, okay, so if General Electric can't figure this out, what's the penalty for General Electric? I mean, it can't be just a consideration of, well, we're working on it, and when we get it fixed, uh, here you go, the software will be delivered. There's massive financial implications for the people of the province here, ratepayers. Oh, taxpayers, ratepayers, we're all kind of one of the same. So what actually happens with General Electric? I think that's a pretty important understanding to bring forward. So Jennifer Williams or anyone else at Hydro and or the minister responsible of that portfolio, Andrew Parsons, if you can help us understand what these continuing obliterations of the schedule mean for me and for General Electric and whether or not there's any penalties in play. And speaking of the software-related matters and or hardware-related matters, 
Minister Haggy, in some form, is downplaying some of the, what people are calling red flags, that were identified by a bunch of Israeli cyber experts when they had a look at our Meditech system. So they said they identified numerous vulnerabilities, security concerns, and compliance issues. Even spoke to what kind of IT professionals we may indeed have working on this particular healthcare system. Okay, so it's a business proposal. I get it. That's exactly what it was intended to be. But how can it be read there was no red flags if they identified vulnerabilities, security concerns? I mean, maybe in the business proposal it may be read that, well, they are possibly exaggerating the need to bring in this particular Israeli-based company to help figure out our Meditech system. So I don't know how serious it was taken. I don't know what kind of work was done on the file when they read the proposal because, yes, it was an evaluation that would identify next steps. What has to be done? What's the, uh, the priority for closing up some of these vulnerabilities? But it's hard to read it as anything else but a warning. So maybe we can find out a little more from Eastern Health and the representative on that file about you know, how they read it and how they decided to proceed given what was the distinct warnings, is what it reads like to me, anyway, coming from this Israeli company and their business proposal. All right, how are we doing on the phone there this morning, fans? There's obviously a ton of issues to get through. We now know that a little bit more about the approach that the province and Eastern Health is taking in dealing with the cardiac surgery backlog. So Ottawa surgeons will be visiting here monthly to try to decrease the numbers of people waiting. You can only imagine the anxiety that people wake up with each and every day, not knowing when the cardiac procedure is going to be taking place. And I guess as part of the temporary solution is also to divert patients to Ottawa for their procedure. I guess if I'm on the list, I just want to get it fixed. I just want the surgery. I'm not really so sure I care if it's at the Health Sciences or at the Ottawa Heart Institute. I just need it done. But, you know, imagine. And it's a good thing that we're able to find partners in Ottawa or anywhere else to help us deal with the backlog. There's very few people working in the field. Three surgeons only, 13 cardiologists, a new surgeon joining the team on the 1st of July. But it's just indicative of just how many gaps we have with healthcare professionals on every level. And it's also nursing week. So good morning, congratulations, keep it up to the pretty overworked and many times burnt out nurses in the province. Okay, let's get to the call sooner than later today. We're on Twitter. Or VOCM Open Line, follow us there. Our email address is openlinefvocm.com. Let's get a tune on the go. One of the great scenes in cinematic history. So Danny Zuko, he drops his T-bird leather to show up at the, the year-ending fair in his Letterman sweater. Sandy does away with her matronly dress, shows up in black leather. Again, one of the finest scenes ever to hit the silver screen. Let's get a little bit of John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Danny Zuko! You hey, gotta be hey, kidding, hey, man! Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, hey, what is this, Halloween? Where did you swipe this Letterman sweat, huh? My tools were out stealing hubcaps on Letterman track. How do you like that? I can't believe it. Danny Zuko turned jock? That's right, I did. What are you doing, deserting us? Well, you guys can't follow either all your lives, can you? Oh, come on, guys. You know you mean a lot to me. It's just that Sandy does, too, and I'm gonna do anything I can to get her. That's right.
weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, as we understood from quite a while back, the issue surrounding masks being worn in schools, there's a press conference coming up uh, this morning at 11 a.m. Dr. Janice Fitzgerald will provide the update on wearing a mask in school. I'm sure a lot of people will be anxiously awaiting what the doctor has to say on that front. Okay, let's begin this morning on the top of the board, on line number one, say good morning to the Mayor Riverhead. That's Sheila Lee. Mayor Lee, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. <clears throat> Patty, sorry. <laughs> it seems that we're, we're calling constantly to your show, but we promise we won't continue doing this on a regular basis. <clears throat> However, the the, uh, the critical issue of getting that license for our plant, uh, like we cannot be able to vocalize enough the importance of it. Um, as we were getting ready to start our rally in St. Mary's yesterday, interestingly, at the same time, you were bringing Mr. Reg Ancy on for an interview. And we, 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 a few of us huddled together and listened to, your, to the show. And I have to say that, uh, <clears throat> that you certainly gave him lots of time and you asked him some important questions. And it, gave, it provided me a level of comfort because um, it, I, felt, I felt like, like Mr. Ancy and his board has, has some integrity there. And interestingly, and so needed, is that they are at arm's length from government. Because politics is politics, and uh, as we can see it playing out this morning. Um, I, I have no doubt that, that our, our application met all the criteria, and even though Mr. Ancy is not allowed to say, which I understand, I, I feel confident that we have what it takes, everything, all the boxes tick to get that license. Now, my concern this morning is, why, why is Minister Bragg dragging his heels? If that was in his district, he'd be knocking on the, on the boardroom door of those of that licensing efficiency board and asking, "How quickly can you give me your decision?" He's the minister. He's a, he ha, he's an, I'm sure he's a great MHA for his district, but he's also the minister of fisheries, and his responsibility in taking that is to is to reach out and to be there and to be fair to the whole province. And we need him now to be fair to us. Why the delay? Every day, every hour counts. And from what was said yesterday, it's been just about a month since the licensing board made their decision. We still don't know what it is officially, and we still don't, don't hear that Minister Bragg is meeting with the board. He didn't need to wait over a month to meet with this board, and he knows the time limit that we have here, the important time limit we have here. So my concern is, and my question is, and my appeal this morning is, Minister Bragg, please, step up to the plate, get that meeting ASAP, and let us know what the decision is. Now, I'm really glad to hear that Mr. Ancy said that their findings, what they're recommending, will be published. And that's fantastic, because under the cloak of secrecy, a lot of things happen, and they're not all very, they need not necessarily be ethical. I hear the people now over in Briggs this morning starting to, mm-hmm. to uh, get a protest going, you know, very much upset over any more licenses. 
Well, let me tell the people in Brigus that St. Mary's uh, Bay, St. Mary's plant had a license for crab for over 40 years. And because unfortunate circumstances, it, we, we lost the license. Uh, now we have what it takes, everything, all the boxes tick, to get that license back and to get operating. We're asking for what, what is rightfully ours. Let me tell the people over in Brickers that over the past two years, the amount of crab ha- quota has been significantly increased. If if you guys were getting your share from your major plant, you shouldn't have to worry about lots of work either. There has been, I know, I've heard, and, I, and I, I'm sorry, but I can't confirm it, but the rumours out there, and it may be very true, that it's actually crab after being dumped. Dumped. Crab that could have been put in our plant and create create work right there. We just want this, and we think we're we think we're asking for what is ours. So please, Minister Bragg, get get moving, and give us a decision. We every every hour we're losing out, and we have so much to gain if we can get that license. I also want to say, Patty, that Open Line, in fact, Verna Hayward, who's a pretty vocal girl, yesterday in, it was only a small amount of stuff that was carried, what we have to say, but she gave you an Open Line, uh, her accolades for the time you have provided for us, because your show is very, very critical to, to our province and to our communities. And you have been so supportive and giving us time to talk and giving time to, to get that, get that uh, Mr. Anstey on, on the radio yesterday, uh, which was fantastic. Now, where's Minister Bragg, Patty? You've sent out the request. You're actually waiting for him to come on. So, Mr. Bragg, please, let us hear from you. And again, Patty, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I want to say thank you. We had such great support yesterday, right from Portugal Cove South to North Harbour. We missed some people in thanking them because the crowd was so huge that we didn't see some of the representatives from communities there. But even the little tiny community of St. Chats, for example, uh, there yesterday, the the, the Council of St. Joseph's and their people there yesterday, people from Admiral's Beach there yesterday, uh, from all our neighbouring communities, and Boy, I tell you, that meant the world to us. Well, uh, I mean, I wish you good luck. But, you know, if the, the folks in Brigus, their representative was speaking this morning on the news, saying that simply, you know, the resource is being caught, and if there's a new crab plant open, a new license given, it just means we're taking resources that would be funneled into that plant or other plants and simply shuffling it around to St. Mary's. I mean, I get the concept. There's only X amount to the quota. But in the... In reality, over the last two years, the increase in the crab quota has shot up some 46%. So obviously the work has been spread around. The harvesters are doing quite well. I would imagine the plants are doing quite well with that massive increase. Snow crab alone will have a landed value in and around $1 billion this year. So when Mr. Ancy talks about concentration and regional issues and adjacency, then it sort of factors into what was once long-standing operations in St. Mary's Bay that are now gone, and I still can't believe I can say this out loud, zero fish processing plants in St. Mary's Bay. So we'll see where the minister comes, and we'll try to have them on as soon as possible, uh, Mary Lee, but I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, Patty, my darling, and we're waiting anxiously to hear the minister. We look forward to getting them on. Thank you. You're welcome. Take Bye-bye. care. That's Reverend Head Mayor Sheila Lee. Look, and I, the folks in Briggs, I, I get what they're saying because they're right. You know, if there's more, if there's another license offered, it will simply mean less material for one plant or another.
as it'll be redirected to St. Mary's. I mean, the proponent says he has access to about 4 million pounds of crab and the boats and the workforce. So we'll see how the fish processing licensing panel proceeds on this front. They can, you know, said kick it down the road one more year and we'll see if we can get the minister on as soon as possible as well. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break. There's a couple of sessions happening at Seniors NL regarding advanced care planning. What exactly that means, we'll find out from Mary Ennis right after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the Outreach Coordinator at Seniors NL. That's Mary Ennis. And good morning, Mary. You're on the air. Thanks, Patty. Good morning to you. Uh, happy to have you on. I saw this news release coming from Seniors NL regarding advanced care planning. And it may feel or sound like a down-in-the-mouth conversation, but it's important to have your wishes known and have these types of conversations. So you've struck a partnership with the Canadian Hospice and Palliative Care Association. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about advanced care planning? Actually, uh, well, as we all know, life can change at any moment. And uh, it's important that the people who who mean the most to us know what we want, it's particularly should, uh, should we reach a stage in our lives where we're unable to make our own decisions or we're unable to communicate them to, uh, to others, to healthcare professionals, etc. And an advanced health care directive, which uh, we call as we call it here in Newfoundland Labrador, it's a legal document in which you can state your health care wishes and treatments if those circumstances arise, if you're unable to uh, communicate them yourself, okay, or make your own decisions. Most provinces and territories in Canada have some kind of advanced health care uh, directive legislation in place to regulate the planning process. And here we have the Advanced Health Care Directives Act, Newfoundland and Labrador. Okay, so let's break it down to what people may be familiar with. Like, are we talking about something as fundamental as uh, aging in place, or are we talking about do not resuscitate orders, or what exactly are we talking about? We're talking about uh, a document that, you know, you may want to consider um, conditions that you have now, existing conditions, like for cancer care, for example, should you reach that point in your life where you're unable to make your own decisions and you decide that, uh, you know, you don't want chemotherapy, for example, then you would list that in the advanced health care directive, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, the advanced the directive, it's, it's really an, it's an important document, you know, it's the, using that document respects the dignity and rights of the individual themselves, if they can't speak for themselves. It's a formal way of uh, giving, uh, providing informed consent by indicating one's preference for end-of-life care in anticipation of the future. It can reduce personal, family, and professional feelings of guilt and burden that can be associated sometimes with end-of-life care and death. And by indicating your wishes early, you and your loved ones won't have to worry about how you will be cared for when, you know, when the time, if that time should come. Not completing an advanced health care directive can lead to family conflict and, and stress at the end of life because we do have, you know, situations where 
family members argue or they disagree on the type of treatment uh, their parents, for example, should receive. You know, but if it's all laid out by the individual before they reach that stage, then it's legally binding, okay? And also, it can be, having an advanced health care directive can be an important measure to prevent abuse during end-of-life care. Okay. What exactly do you mean by that, Mary? Well... There's having an, an advanced health care directive in place is a form of self-protection against possible abuse by um, professionals even, or family members or friends, or, you know, someone might want to, uh, uh, mom might want to be left on life support until such time as, as uh, she revives, if that ever happens, but she may not want to die, she may want to try. And I remember a friend of mine saying one time, they're just going to have put me on life support until uh, until they find a cure for whatever I have. Okay? But family members, or, you know, if no family, friends, or relatives, they may feel, oh, I'm tired, I want her gone, and so they, you know, may say, no, take her off life support. Okay? It could be something more minor than that, like medications, you know, no, don't give her that medication anymore. Let, let her pass on. Yeah, I was wondering why it would be important to put it in uh, a legal document form, because you're right, you can only imagine the emotions that are swirling amongst the siblings while you're trying to figure out what mom may or may not want versus mom telling us what she wants, and then, of course, we abide by her wishes when yep. the time comes. So uh, I think that's an important distinction that people probably needed to hear. And again, we're, we're not talking about things so dire to put people... Uh, have people just in a state of worry or in a bad mood. We're talking about the realities of life. At some point, yeah. these types of decisions are going to have to be made. And to remove the burden and to respect the wishes of our loved ones, it just makes all the sense in the world. So what can Seniors NL do for people who are now interested in maybe pursuing this type of conversation inside their family circle? Is there some online sessions that are taking place? Or what can you tell us that Seniors NL are doing for the provinces? Seniors maybe in particular, but others who would like to uh, pursue this a little further. Yep. There's, um, well, this, this workshop, for example, and this will be held in, in workshop format, okay, and the second part of it is will be actually drafting the Advanced Healthcare Directive, and that will be open to only to those who have registered to go through the planning process, which will explain what the uh, Advanced Healthcare Directive is, how it's helpful, and also the whole process of appointing a substitute decision maker because that's one of the things that's encouraged in an advanced healthcare directive is that you appoint one or more people that you trust fully to carry out your wishes and name them as the ones who can make who make, to make the decisions the final decisions for you with the uh, healthcare professionals and uh, even those, if, if they, they could be family members, they could be whomever you trust, as long as they're 16 years of age and over. And um, they will um, be entrusted with, these with 
making these decisions. And what they say, if they're listed in the advanced healthcare directive, what the substitute decision maker says is is what's legal. That they can override the family anything the family members say if they're not listed. I really appreciate making time for the show this morning, Mary. Thank you very much. Would you like to add anything else? Uh, no, just I encourage people to sign up for uh, Tuesday's session, and you can call the office at 737-2333. Thanks a lot, Mary. Stay in touch. Thanks, Patty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Marianne. She's the Outreach Coordinator at Seniors NL. Okay, let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Liberal member from Mount Sio. She's the Minister of Digital Government and Service NL, Sarah Studley. Minister Studley, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thank you. How about you? I'm excellent, and I just thought that uh, the overview from Mary and Seniors NL was excellent and very informative, and uh, they do great work. So uh, thanks to Mary as well for just calling in as well. Yeah, they sure do. Uh, I'm happy to do some work with Seniors NL. Okay, so the new Off-Road Vehicles Act regulations has been now put in place. There was a lot of pushback, so effectively it says you have to wear a helmet on all off-road vehicles. It is mandatory. The side-by-side yeah. issue, how did you broach it? Because that was the first pushback from folks in the provinces. I'm in an enclosed space here in my side-by-side. There isn't room to wear the helmet X, Y, and Z. How did you adjudicate moving in that direction? Absolutely. So, um, you know, all the manufacturers of all the side-by-sides, enclosed or not, recommend wearing a helmet. You know, if you look in your manual, it says wear a helmet. And I think there's a lot of confusion. You know, I know a lot of people have full face helmets, but that's not, you know, you don't need a full face helmet. You need a helmet that meets three of the, you know, one of three of the standards listed in the regulations. And like a half helmet is perfectly acceptable. Uh, it meets the DOT standard. Um, and so I know that, you know, people in an enclosed side-by-side might not want to wear a full face shield helmet, and that might not be practical. But, you know, if you can get a half helmet, and I don't think they're very expensive, um, and to keep you safe and follow the law. Okay. There also talks about the need to put on seatbelts when they're available in the rig. So, you know, again, so this is something someone's already said to me. I'm in an enclosed space. I have on my helmet. I'm just going down the berry picking path. Why do I need to wear my seatbelt? Sure. So, uh, you know, we did look at at what other provinces are doing and what manufacturers recommend. And and unfortunately, we can't have laws for people who go really slow when they're picking berries on the weekend. You know, we have to to create the laws uh, that apply in all situations. Um, So when you consider side-by-side, and I have had a lot of people reach out and say, well, what about my Jeep Wrangler or a convertible on the highway? So um, I guess there's a big difference between a a vehicle that's been approved by Transport Canada for being roadworthy on on a road like a Wrangler or a a convertible um, versus an off-road vehicle. So the side-by-sides, although you feel like you're in a real road vehicle, that has not been crash-tested. In most cases, there's no no, uh, airbags. Um, you know, and when you're on an ATV, you can shift your weight and, and have some more control. But the side by sides are so heavy that you actually are pragmatically not controlling your weight. Um, you, you know, moving, shifting your weight around. Um, you know, I know that there's like ice patches, and you know, I've heard lots of stories from uh, experienced off-road vehicle users that you know they think they're going slow and doing something, but maybe they're backing up, you know, in the back of the truck or on the trailer. Um, and, you know, they, they didn't have it lined up properly, and then, you know, the off-road vehicle slips off. Um, and I guess there's lots of stories, and I've also heard from, you know, doctors at the Janeway and in our health sciences and our other medical facilities, and they talk about the injuries that they see to people 
um, on off-road vehicles of all types. And, you know, they cannot stress that, you know, sometimes you might not have a serious, you know, what you might think is a serious head injury, um, but a helmet, wearing a helmet for that extra inconvenience um, will pay dividends for your quality of your life. And, you know, so, um, you know, we did consider a, a lot of different things, but, you know, in most provinces, uh, I think except for two, helmets are mandatory and side-by-sides also. So uh, this is kind of the standard. And, and um, as of Thursday, uh, next Thursday before the long weekend, uh, we will have to wear helmets uh, in all opera vehicles. We did build in an exception uh, if you're doing hunting at hunting and trapping activities and you have a low speed under 20 kilometers an hour. Um, and, you know, that's to accommodate, you know, some of our, um, you know, uh, indigenous uh, communities in Labrador who might uh, be doing some, uh, you know, hunting, trapping um, at low speeds. So that's the only exemption for wearing a helmet. Okay. These types of regulations, of course, are important, and it's part of your mandate inside your portfolio. But like everything else, enforcement will be the key. So annually, sitting in this chair, I can tell you that I can predict when the phone calls start coming about noisy ATVs or dirt bikes or the way they're being driven and the aggressive nature and the speed and all the rest of it. So regulations are fine. Enforcement hasn't been what it needs to be in many communities over the last number of years. And, of course, some folks in rural will say it was part of life, and some of these are an imposition on us, and they're all necessary. So what about the enforcement side? Sure. So we've designed these regulations and, and the legislation in conjunction with feedback we got from the RNC and the RCMP um, to try and make things easier to enforce where possible. So uh, one example is around supervision. Um, so my understanding is before uh, the rules around supervision were not as clear as they could be. So um, taking that recommendation, we have now very clear rules around supervision. So you have to be able to, to visually see and take direction, immediate direction from a supervisor if you're under 16. Um, people under 16 have to be supervised by someone 18 years over with a licensed uh, a driver's license. Um, and so the wording in, in the, the new legislation will hopefully make that uh, easier to enforce. Um, the other suggestion that came from law enforcement uh, was around when you can cross a highway. So previously the visibility was 100 yards and, you know, most people, a lot of people now don't know how, how big a yard is. Uh, we've changed that to 150 meters. Um, and, we, you know, we got feedback from law enforcement that that was more appropriate. Um, so we have taken that into consideration. Um, I, you know, I know that there's not, you know, we could always have more enforcement everywhere. Um, that's something that we certainly, you know, have active conversations with uh, our law enforcement partners, as well as fishery, forestry, agriculture, um, who also do uh, enforcement of this as well. Uh, last one before I let you go. So you're also in the news this week talking about amendments to the Petroleum Products Act to have the PUB to be more transparent, accountable, to uh, elaborate on their work and justify why there's a change in the price of various fuels. The critically important question, I'm not sure if this is part of the amendments or get your thoughts on it. It's one thing to understand how the cake is made, but just knowing the recipe doesn't make the outcome or the taste any better. So are we going to evaluate whether or not regulated price on fuel is in the best interest of the consumer? Because it's not the case elsewhere or not everywhere else. Sure. So everywhere in Atlantic Canada does have regulated fuel pricing, and that came in in 2001 here and then was reviewed again and uh, in 2004, we, we uh, I guess, had the, st the structure we have now, which is the Public Utilities Board. Um, and so, you know, every Thursday or then when we're, whenever we have these um, our, uh, the extraordinary changes, we set a max – the Public Utilities Board sets a maximum price, but there's no minimum price. And so, you know, we see every Thursday the, the prices go up, and that's the new maximum price. 
Um, but we don't see a lot of people charging lower than that. Some, some big, you know, stores do, but we don't see a lot of that. And I, that, I think that speaks to the regulation. Like if there was no regulation, there would be no maximum price. Right. And then things. So originally before 2001, when this, the regulation came in, um, some of the concerns are, are actually similar to what we're hearing now. You know, the prices were changing. It was extremely volatile on a daily basis. No one had any idea. There was no predictability. Um, and I know, you know, we've seen a lot of the extraordinary price adjustments lately, I think eight in the last um, so many months, whereas before um, years ago, we had only had one, you know, in, in um, you know, over 10 years. And so with the formula that we have now, um, so the benchmark New York Harbor price is based on the seven-day average from this Platts, um, th- this company that does uh, global gas pricing. And so, you know, someone like George Murphy or, or other gas advocates can subscribe to information and use that information to predict what's going to happen with our gas prices. And I think that does give us a level of predictability um, rather than all the retailers and wholesalers charging you know, whatever they want. Um, and I think it is, I, I think the best thing that we can see is that we have a maximum price now and no minimum price, and we don't see a lot of people charging less. So I personally am not sure that deregulation would lead to lower prices. I, I don't think it would. It's the tricky piece of the competitive nature of the marketplace, isn't it? So if there's a maximum, most stations will charge very close too because if I'm living in St. John's but manuals I could pay a cent less, I'm not driving out there to save a cent. But that's the whole concept maybe with like privatizing the, the NLC. What's the upside for the consumer is that maybe competition would drive down prices because people know that we're penny pinching now, so that would possibly be part of the competitive nature. But point taken, uh, 24 separate price changes in the last 11 weeks this is not only giving people worry, it's extremely frustrating. So we'll see what the amendments mean for the, the consumer out there. And I appreciate your time this morning, Minister Studley. Thank you. Thank you, Penny. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Sarah Studley, she's the member for Mount Sio, the Minister of Digital Government and Service NL. She's also Chief. Uh, her portfolio includes Office of the Chief Information Officer, too. Maybe you should ask her some of those Michael Harry-related questions. We'll get her back. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to Mayor George Andrews. Mayor Andrews, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. I'm not so sure we've ever spoken in the past, Mayor Andrews. You're the new mayor of Happy Valley Goose Bay, right? I am indeed, and you are correct. This is the first time that I've uh, spoken. I've spoken to your counterpart in the past, but not to you, sir. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, listen, I just want to send a huge shout out to um, uh, nurses. Um, the last, uh, within the last month, uh, my daughter, unfortunately, she has uh, severe allergies and has suffered a couple of uh, anaphylactic episodes, um, both in Goose Bay and uh, just uh, two nights ago. Uh, we had to overnight in the Janeway uh, as a result. So uh, listen, I just I just want to send uh, from our community perspective, our nurses are uh, you know one of the backbones uh, of of the healthcare system. Uh, they're you know overworked. They're mandated to work extra shifts, and they still come to work the next day with a smile. Uh, witnessed it again here a couple of evenings ago at uh, at the Janeway. Uh, you know they they go over and above and beyond. Uh, they have that smile, the empathy that they show is absolutely fantastic, and they have a, an absolute crap filled day. And then return the next day to do, uh, 
you know, to do and uh, make a big difference to uh, to uh, to folks. And uh, so I just want to send a huge uh, thank you to uh, to these guys and uh, ladies that uh, that do this job and uh, and help us uh, generally as a community. So without them, we'd be in a hard spot. So I just want to say personally, thank you very much. Well, look, you know, people complain about healthcare all the time, but once you get in the system, the professionals. Two man to woman are top quality, and they have such an extraordinarily difficult job to be able to keep up the bedside manner to the appropriate level is really is really something to behold. I agree with you hundred percent and i I have witnessed someone take an anaphylactic reaction based on uh, this person was peanuts it's extremely scary to watch yeah, it is patty, and uh, you know as a parent uh, we I've had to go through it, my wife and I and our family's gone through it with our younger daughter for probably five or six times um but uh, again the you know this uh, couple of evenings ago here at the janeway the nurses were there they were telling me what was happening uh, you know I, I knew some of it that was there uh, you're in the midst uh, of uh, like i say a very serious uh, uh, could be life-altering uh, event and uh, these guys are calm they're you know helping you uh, understand what's happening uh, but most of all like i say uh, you know, you hear all the stories about them being mandated to work extra hours and time, the stress that's on them. Uh, without them, we'd be done. So, uh, like I say, I, I just, uh, from a personal uh, involvement, and, and I, unfortunately I've had the opportunity to be involved uh, with, with, you know, the healthcare system and that over the number of years, uh, a little bit more, I guess, than, uh, than I want for sure. But uh, each and every day, uh, you know, these, these nurses step up to uh, the plate and uh, just make that whole process just a little bit better. And like I say, there's a couple of careers I wouldn't be able to do, and nursing is one of them. Uh, but they, they leave that, uh, you know, you see them deflated, they leave them walking the door at the shift change. But they always come back the next day and, uh, you know, with the same vigor and stuff. So, yeah, I just, I can't say thank you enough. Uh, and I, I'm sure they appreciate your comments here this morning, Mayor Andrews. You know, Happy Valley Goose Bay, last year I know the uh, federal government invested two or $300,000 to find some affordable housing solutions in your community. We know that the issues regarding the transient population, homelessness, addictions, is a real big task for you and fellow members of council and the province to take on. What would you like people to know about what happens on that front? Because that's a community-wide issue, not just about uh, community safety, but these are so apparent in the community of Happy Valley Goose Bay. What do you want people to understand about what's happening in your town? Yeah, you know, our town's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful community, just like many other communities within the province. We, we have an issue with uh, homelessness and transient uh, uh, folks there now. We're working as part of a team. Uh, it's called the Action Team. It's a makeup of uh, multiple, multiple organizations. Uh, the indigenous groups are involved, uh, government support agencies like, uh, you know, our healthcare system and things like that. Um, we're working away. There's not one simple fix for this solution. Uh, one simple solution, sorry, for this uh, to fix this problem. It's not totally an enforcement. It's not totally, a, you know, a mental health and addictions. So collaboratively, we're playing part uh, of a of a team that uh, are doing small things uh, to uh, to work towards, I guess, a bigger change. Uh, we're looking at, uh, you know, constructing uh, potentially constructing a new facility. Um, similar to a gathering place, um, you know, where services and that can be brought to uh, to folks that uh, you know would uh, would need them. Uh, so, like I say, we're we're working uh, as hard as we can from a community perspective to be part of this team and support where we can. So, hopefully, uh, you know, we don't see situations where, you know, uh, like we did past winter, where you know people perished, you know, uh, close to uh, a facility that could help them. Uh, and that's what we're trying to avoid, and we're trying to make uh, life better. And at the other side, you know, there is a security issue in terms of uh, in terms of the community, both from keeping uh, folks safe and protecting things. So, yeah, it's, it's a huge challenge, but uh, 
we're we're you know at the task and uh, this group i'm really really pleased to say this group is starting to make some uh, some uh, measures to uh, to work towards mitigating the issues so. i appreciate you making time for the program on both fronts this morning mayor andrew stay in touch yeah, no problem. Thanks very much. Have well, a great day. You too. Bye-bye. It's Mayor, Mayor George Andrews. Happy Valley Goose Bay. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, whatever you want to talk about, that's up to you. Don't go away. The Workday Winds Down with Greg Smith in The Drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Sylvester. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I just want to make a few comments on the situation with the crab license in St. Mary's. Sure. Uh, Patty, last year, last yesterday, we had, uh, I guess, the biggest protest was ever held in St. Mary's on an issue with a between three hundred to four hundred people and one horse attending. Uh, however, I'd like to take this opportunity to. Uh, to congratulate and thank Mayor Steve Ryan, Mayor Sheila Lee, Mayor Verna Hayward for the organization of this protest. It was a it was a great achievement on their part. However, Patty, I I just want to make some brief comments. And I need some clarification. I think Mayor Lee spoke earlier on your program, which uh, answered some of my questions. A few days ago, she was on open line, and was, she, I think she was followed by the member for Mount Pearl Southlands, Paul Lane, who made a comment on it. And I think he stated, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, that the licensing someone had told him that the licensing board had approved this application. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But it, and Mayor Steve Ryan stated yesterday that you know he was part of of uh, a presentation that was made to the board on behalf of the processor or the or the owner uh, that they had made a, an excellent uh, presentation so i'm just wondering why it's taking the minister so long and to to make his decision on this issue also, Mr. Anstey say, stated yesterday that the decision of the board will be public knowledge once when the uh, minister makes his decision, whether he accepts or rejects that recommendation that the board made. So, The only place to get an answer to that is from the minister, because yeah, we can have people surmise and think yes, and guess yes. and the rest of it, but that's why we're going to try to have the minister on. And that's the very first question, is what was the recommendation? Because in the past, you know, government will establish these standalone boards, uh, quasi-independent or quasi-judicial like the PUB, and it's helpful to have independent voices having a look at these types of things. But by and large, recommendations from the Fish Processing Licensing Board has been, as far as I can tell, recommendations coming from the board to say yes have been approved by the minister. So that's come in variety of forms, like when Elvis Lovelace was the minister, and there was a very contentious issue regarding Royal Greenland and foreign ownership and the concentration of, and it was approved, even though there was comments coming from Mr. Anthony's group that, you know, we have to be wary of that. So... When we get the minister on, the very first question is, what was the recommendation? Yeah, well, those questions should, should, should be asked first too, Patty. On CBC News last evening, they said that the board 
that the minister now is going back to the board. And if, if they're at arm's length to the board, why did he have to go back? They have, they have their, uh, uh, they have, he have their recommendation. The processor stated they answered all the questions. The information was provided that is required to get a new license. So why not make a decision? Uh, it's not and, something I can answer. I don't know about. No, I know you, but but uh, this should be planted in the minister's ear whenever he comes on. And the other thing was, uh, Mary Lee referred to was the dumping of crabs. That there was, there's rumours that there's been crab have been dumped. So that tells me there's not enough a processing license or processing plants to process what's been landed. Now I'm not saying that if Saint Mary's plant is issued a license that it will solve the problem, but it will make some inroads in solving the problem. It'll, it will contribute to it. So I think the minister should come clean and give us an answer sooner rather than later. And Patty, finally, I'd like to say that for some years now, the province, the government of our province, is promoting regional government. Well, right now, we have nothing to regionalize over. Every council is just here, here in this region is struggling to stay alive. And with problems with water, uh, good quality water, which we have made some progress after years and years of trying it, uh, it seems like we have something working for, in our favor now. But there's other communities that don't have that. So it would be a problem, I think, in trying to establish a regional government in this region. But if the councils are struggling, wouldn't some more cooperation and collaboration find those efficiencies be helpful rather than harmful? I, I don't know. What, 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 what would the discussions be? Well, I mean, there's a couple of examples out there in the recent past that I think, you know, when people hear regionalization, they think it's an all-in. That's it. Lost my identity, one big government trying to manage all my affairs, paying more taxes, getting nothing for it, like in Lab City Wabush. They've arrived at a funding agreement to reopen the Mike Adams Recreation Center. Governments don't lose their identity. They still manage their own affairs, but they're cooperating on a joint interest. Then there's what going on at Conception Harbor, for instance. So there's four different communities involved there, and what they've figured out is that they could probably save $125,000 just in one community alone if they do away with their four waste management contracts, streamline it into one, long-term the contract, save the community's money, and improve the service. So these are just examples, I think, of what regionalization could look like as opposed to this entire swath is all of a sudden just one big monolith. Okay, go ahead. That's already been done here. We're all in service for garbage collection. The same contractor does all the communities. We pay for our fire protection. But I'm saying if the communities come together, how do we share the wealth that we have that's going around? That, you know, And if this plant opens, it will be a big contributor to that factor, or it can be, with putting people to work, paying, paying council uh, taxes and so on. So anyway, that's my spiel on, on this issue, and I, I request the minister to make his decision uh, sooner rather than later. And we will try an attempt to have the minister on sooner than later. Appreciate the time, Sylvester. Okay, Petty, thank you for your time. Take good care. Bye. All right, bye-bye.
Uh, we won't start this conversation quite yet because we want to give Courtney the ample time. That's Courtney Langille. She's with the FFAW Unifor. So there's, there was a report commissioned by DFO regarding seals and the seal population and the predatory nature of the seal. And in some corners, it's been referred to as it's woefully inadequate given the lack of science, limited information held by DFO Science regarding exactly what goes on with seals off our shores, what it means for the recovery of a variety of different sea species. So, Courtney, right after the break, don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go line number one. Say good morning to Courtney Langille from the FFAW Unifor. Good morning, Courtney. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. So there's, you know, a lot of talk about seals, and there always has been and there always will be. You know, there's a vast difference between the amount of science and comments coming from DFO regarding the seal predation, predation in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. But not the same approach or amount of information available here. Your thoughts on what this most recent report was? It's, it was commissioned by DFO, not held by DFO. What do you think? I think that, I mean, it's certainly um, the recommendations that they put forward uh, were all in complement to what we put forward in our opportunity to be involved in that consultation last year. If anything, the report really supports that there is a lot of work to be done. And I think the minister's announcement yesterday acknowledges that uh, there are huge gaps in, in the scientific evidence that there isn't an influence on uh, seal predation on fish stocks and there is an imbalance. So if anything, this is the first step in, in many steps that we have to take. Um, but I feel like we, we've been heard after years and years of uh, really raising the alarms on, on the gaps in science and uh, really the disconnect in what harvesters are seeing on the water and uh, what DFO is admitting that there's no issue. So we talk about task forces and consultants and summits and they're all the rage for governments. What exactly can we expect in a SEAL summit that's going to be hosted sometime this fall in, in St. John's? Well, one thing that I did notice um, on the committee is there's a lot of representation from fisheries organizations, but there wasn't a huge presence from actual sealers. So that's something that I anticipate is going to be much more collaborative in this, this SEAL summit. Um, I would like to see representation from all levels of government, uh, representation from different fisheries organizations throughout the Atlantic, as well as invitations to those in, in B.C. Uh, and Quebec who have reached out to us since we launched our campaign in February, that this is a shared issue on their coastlines as well, uh, indigenous groups, and, and the larger industry, because we are all impacted, and we all have an opportunity here as well. Okay, so the comment is that because of the limited information held by DFO Science, if we have a SEAL summit without an increase in the information held by DFO science, is it simply a matter of chattering versus being able to dig into what the science says and then make decisions based on it? There is definitely a risk of that. Um, and there's been a lot of, I guess, um, uh, DFO being passive about pursuing greater science. But I think one of the things that came through from the report yesterday was um, the opportunity for a more collaborative approach. Um, as well as more opportunities to work with industry 
to bring about more fulsome data, and that includes consideration to support industry vessels to expand gaps in data collection efforts. And uh, that's a great opportunity for us because our harvesters are on the water. They're in the field. They're seeing this in pursuit of their livelihoods, whereas DFO is working on models and databases in the 1990s. So I think the fact that that has been acknowledged uh, really leads to a gateway for it to be uh, much more of a constructive conversation about how we approach that. Hypotheticals aren't really that helpful, but let's try one. So let's say <laughs> that they amp up their science and data collection game at DFO, and so that we'll have some more information to deal with at the pending SEAL summit. Let's just say that they now indicate that SEAL predation is a big deal in the effort, say, for recovery of Northern Cod. Then what? Because even if we have that to be understood, we don't even take the entire quota of the SEALs each year. So what would next steps even look like? Because a call is a political issue. It's done elsewhere, but there hasn't been any appetite in this country up until now. If you don't have a place to sell all the products of the SEAL, then what are we actually looking at, even if we come up with firm confirmation that SEALs are inhibiting the recovery of even just northern cod? Oh, I agree. There's there's a lot of complexity to this from, from trade barriers, uh, as well as uh, the issue of, of the emotions attached to, you know, the potential for a call. If, if DFO decides, you know, we are going to take action to bring balance and, and try and bring things down to sustainable population levels. And I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot that's serving us now at, at this time versus, um, you know, previously when this has been suggested. Uh, you look at uh, the, the, the BC wolf call, uh, that was approved for another five years uh, as of January this year to bring balance to the caribou population up there. And those are uh, actions that uh, were, were undertaken in agreement with provincial and federal governments. And, of course, what else is serving us now is that we are not so much in an emotional age. We are in an information age. A lot of the propaganda and misinformation and mischaracterization that happened in, in you know, the, the early 2000s um, with all these NGOs and environmental groups that uh, really, really uh, had a, a devastating impact on the industry. I think that now with, with the resources and the tools and the information that we have, we can overcome that and, and really look at the bigger picture of, of preserving biodiversity, of preserving our fishing stocks, and generally just, just bringing that balance back to the ocean. And that should be a shared objective. Courtney, uh, so we'll see what becomes of the SEAL Summit. Uh, there's been a rocky start, I would suggest, for Minister Joyce Murray. Her, some of her comments about leaving the fish in the water and the harvesters will just have to live with this. That's a paraphrase and probably a bit of a clumsy one. But, you know, here we are, snow crab season. And there's some arguments about a new license to be offered for a plant in St. Mary's. But be- before the season starts, of course, the FFAW will put forward a price and the Association for Seafood Producers will put forward a price. It landed on their price. 760, same as what it was last year, even though there's a massive increase in the total allowable catch. But my understanding is that they've resubmitted to the price-setting panel for an adjustment of price. What can you tell us about that? Um, well, all that I'm prepared to say uh, to that point right now is that uh, those reconsideration meetings are taking place today. Uh, there is an anticipation for a hearing tomorrow, and the panel has to come to a decision on uh, on Monday as to whether they are going to reconsider the price. So there's a, there's a lot being uh, undertaken on very short notice here, but uh, we did anticipate it with the the global circumstances, we knew that there will be an impact to markets. So our team is working very, very hard and we're prepared. 
there's uh, one more issue before I let you go, Courtney, and this is not new. And, you know, we all have arguments about the quotas being shared between the inshore and the offshore, whether or not adjacency, uh, pardon me, adjacency should be enshrined in the Fisheries Act. But a lot of these ills could be cured for the maximum benefit of the inshore and offshore harvester in this country and in this province if we dealt with foreign overfishing. So for the fifth time in six years, a Portuguese offshore dragger has been cited for improper documentation and all the rest of the same old things, the same old song and dance all the time. NAFO has proven to be a fairly toothless organization. How does your organization react when you hear these stories and you see that they obviously don't care because it's five times in six years. They just keep coming back doing the same thing. I think that there was uh, there was definitely progress made when owner operator was enshrined in regulations last year, but it's still not being enforced. Uh, we have no indication of what resources the department is using to enforce these regulations. And without enforcement, I mean, it looks good on paper, but that's about it. But I do agree with you that foreign ownership is is gutting our fishery. Uh, the owner operator fishery, it's essentially, you know, thousands of small businesses on the water. And, and without preserving that integrity, you're you're really you know taking the resource out from under them. And the linchpin of the inshore fishery and onshore processing makes sure that that wealth in the water becomes wealth on land in in our coastal communities. So we, I mean, our mandate as a union is to preserve that relationship and and to make sure that coastal communities have that that economic sustainability that that accounts for. And there's no other industry that's going to supplement that. Um, so, you know, now these, with with our relationship with this new minister continuing to be constructive, even though we have, you know, obviously challenged decisions that she has made, uh, we are very hopeful that um, with a little bit more education and opportunity, uh, we can grow the relationship with her so that she understands uh, the integrity of, of the insurer and and what we are challenged with without the enforcement of these regulations and what's at risk. And, and that's really important for us to lay out for her. And the fact that she was uh, in the province yesterday in Cornerbrook, she's certainly seen, um, you know, the, the vitality of these communities. And I hope that she took some of that back with her. And uh, we'll bring it to these future conversations that we have. Because when the federal government and NAFO itself, you know, talking about the maybe the lack of enforcement or the stiffness of penalties because things would be injurious to international relations, is really a gut punch to people involved in the industry here. It's historically why we're here, and the value continues to grow, landed value, that is. I appreciate you making time for the show, Courtney. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Patty. You're welcome. Take good care. Bye-bye. Take care. That's Courtney Langille. She's the government relations and campaign manager at the FFAW Unifor. Before we get to the break, let's go to line number two. Leo, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you, Leo. Uh, this lady that was on uh, First Caller, I believe a senior's advocate, uh, I never got too much out of it. I don't know, probably it was my ears now or the audio. But uh, what was she talking about the, 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 uh, the last days, was it, more or less? Well, yeah, it's uh, a session or a couple of sessions they're doing regarding advanced care planning. And I thought it was actually quite informative. That was Mary Ennis from Seniors NL. You know, talking about the fact that we all have different types of wishes for how we'd like to be treated uh, when we age and when we get sick and maybe no longer able to voice our wants. So if you formalize it on a legal document, for instance, you know, if I want to reject 
chemo because yeah. the, the the prognosis is quite dire and I don't want to go through that process. So if you put it on a document, what happens is, mm. as opposed to me and my brothers and sisters arguing with each other about what we think mom might want, mom would have told us what she wants. And so you take away all that pressure, decision-making and fighting and all the rest of it. So it was basically just, you know, to provoke a conversation about making your wishes known. And my my thought on this, uh, I mean, say I'm not too worried about dying. When time comes to die, that, 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 that that's beside the point. I think that they should look at us now, while we're still on the go, you know, and and try to help us out, uh, which I suppose they're doing to a certain extent. But what I've always thought about it as, say, for instance, uh, I uh, could have went into a home when I was say 65. I could have went into a into a personal care home, okay? Now I probably I probably said this before because I believe in, but I could have went into a personal care home, and they would have taken my check and they would have given me one hundred and fifty dollars, and the government would have subsidized that personal care home a thousand dollars or up to a thousand dollars, around thousand dollars a month. Now, if I decided, which I did, to stay in my own to stay out of these personal care homes, to stay in my own apartment. And uh, then, uh, I mean, say, uh, if otherwise, they wouldn't give me nothing. They'll give, they, they give the, uh, the personal care home a $1,000, subsidize them. So why couldn't they take, the, uh, say, $500 to the people like myself who are trying to stay in their own homes? And um, you, take, you take, for instance, a person, say, living in a community in their own house. I'm in an apartment, don't matter. But in their own house, I mean, say, they've got the community council on their back and they're charging them taxes. Why the hell don't they give them a break and, and give the seniors, you know, give the seniors a break and not charge them this, this uh, property tax? Seniors get a, br- a break on property tax, not a free pass on property tax here in no. the city, so I'm not sure what it's like elsewhere. Um, but the the whole bit about uh, take your money and give you a, a stipend or a, an allowance inside a care yeah. home, it's all just simply based on your net income and what level of subsidy you yes. are eligible for from the provincial government. So I, I get that point, which is why people say, hey, jacking up my old age security a little bit or what have you, it doesn't really end up in my pocket because of what you just mentioned when yeah. there, there's something to that. Uh, I think there's work being done, and they talk about it, whether it be Health Accord or others, talking about plans to age in place, uh, plans for the frail elderly, and that's not meant to be insulting. It's actually a medical phrase, I'm led to believe. Frail. So, frail elderly, but that, that's actually a thing. That's actually a category in healthcare about, you know, for instance, medically able to be discharged from a hospital, uh, assessment of your medical needs as you are placed in a personal care home or long-term care facility or acute care. So I think there's lots of work to be done. Even if you just look at some of the reports that we saw last week regarding the aging uh, demographics in Atlantic Canada in particular. If we don't plan in advance for what affordable housing looks like for a senior, what the potential for programs and investment in aging in place, which would be growing old in your own home with whatever type of supports you may indeed need, if we don't get out in front of it, even things like dementia, I mean, those are numbers that we can't avoid. As much as it's a difficult conversation, if we don't plan, it's worse for everybody. It's chaotic. It's more expensive. It's more troubling. It's more frustrating. It's more makes more people more angry. So these things have to be done. There's no argument coming from me, Leo. And they have got to be looked at on an individual basis, I think. You know, I'll take myself, for instance. I got uh, old age pension supplement and uh, a kind of pension. 
Uh, I got what I, you know, I don't want nothing else. I, I can manage on what I got. I got a family that helps me out. So I got, I got you know, I, I don't want nothing. I don't want nothing more than I got. But, I mean, say, there's people that are living in their own homes right now, say, for instance, uh, well, we've been through that a dozen, dozen times, a couple that are living in their own home, one of them dies, and the whole thing is put right on the back of the one that survives. And why the hell not try to help them out? You know, I mean, say, I don't want it, but if, even if they say they're going to, if they went in the home, they give they give the homeowner a thousand dollars. Well, why not give them five hundred dollars to help them live in their own home? Because they're always going on about this. Oh, we're going to help seniors live in their own homes, or we're going to, you know, stay in their own homes and all this crap. And it turns my stomach every time one of these these politicians gets on and says that, you know, because they're yeah. not helping us. I don't know how every single case can be evaluated uh, as a standalone, but I get your point. Like, even if we're talking about who needs some help now with home heating rebate or something and or an increase in role age security. Look, not every senior has the exact same financial situation. I mean, I know seniors that that are, let's just pick a number, 77 years old, they don't need one single dollop of additional help. They've done well in their professional careers. They have significant investments. They own their own home. But that might... That doesn't mean that the 77-year-old living next door is in the same situation. We much have a very different set of needs. So you're right. We've got to tailor support for who actually needs it, not just yeah. pluck a number based on age because that doesn't really tell the entire tale, as far as I can tell anyway. Yeah. Oh, this, 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 last word to you, Leo, because i got to go. Yeah, okay, good enough. All right. Yeah, take it easy. Okay, buddy, all the best. Yeah. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Just quickly before we get to the callers. So, uh, again, with sporting achievements, arts achievements, uh, academics, whatever it is, if you tell me about it, I'm happy to give people a shout-out on the show, like I did with Joel Kratz this morning from Lab City, going to the World Junior Curling Championships. Listener, displeased that I said he's the only person to go to two back-to-back worlds, when that's not what I said. I said that he's gone to the juniors twice, not just any worlds. And maybe because he's not a townie, people aren't townies, I don't give him shout-outs. Well, we all know that's nonsense, right? So you supply me with the info, I'll give you the shout-out. But he wants to recognize the fact that we have had back-to-back World Curling Championship participants and champions. 2004, 2005, or 2003 and 2004, Baz Buckle from Cornerbrook went to back-to-back worlds, won it. So it was Baz, Bob Freeman, Jerry Young, and Harvey Holloway were the members of that particular Baz Buckle curling rink. Let's go line number three. Say good morning to the president, municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Amy Cody. Good morning, Amy. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Uh, hanging in there. How you doing? <laughs> it's a great show this morning. I, you know I'm a super fan, so I love all the discussion, all the interaction, and just hear everybody call in with their thoughts and ideas and opinions. You know, it's, it's what makes for an interesting show, so to speak. I, I appreciate that. Uh, and in the last couple of days, you know, not just talk about public transit and the need, the city needs the province to apply for some of that funding, but... I've been trying to engage the conversation of what public transportation might look like outside the Avalon, outside the metro region. The hub and spoke. I've been told I'm absolutely foolish for bringing it up, but I don't think so. (laughs) I think there's more to be understood here. I know there's a presentation at your symposium about that exact concept. What was offered and what were the reactions? Yeah, so at our symposium last week, uh, Dr. Dietra Walsh, who is the M&L Director of Advocacy and Communications, 
she spoke about public transportation and the need uh, for public transportation. When we talk about public transportation right away, you think about St. John's and Corner Brook and a busing system. Um, and we know that, you know, that's, that's not all that public transportation is, and it's not just the larger cities who can offer public transportation. When we talk about regionalization, uh, you know, that's what one of the things that came up in, in the session. How do we work together in our in our rural communities to provide a, a level of public transportation? We know how important it is, um, and, you know, we don't like to get involved in particular disputes and conversations like what's happening now with uh, the city of St. John's and with the province. But we do know that our, our counterparts, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, have been advocating for this, uh, you know, transit funding um, and and talking about the importance of it. So um, the session with DITRA was just, I mean, it was well attended. There was so much great discussion. Um, and our, our municipalities know that we have to start thinking outside the box. We need to start working together. And there's options. We just need to have conversations about figuring out what they are and how they can work and, and what the best solutions are. And we also know that public transportation is not very likely going to generate revenue. I mean, it's going to cost money, most likely. So we need to come up with ways to you know, find funding for public transportation, to be able to support it in our communities, and to be able to offset some of the costs associated with it. We kind of do it already, except it's the private sector offering a private offering. So you'll have Absolutely, people who yeah. own a 15-passenger van, and they will have opportunities to travel from smaller parts, let's just say on the Buren Peninsula, smaller uh, communities on the Buren Peninsula, into, into Marystown or St. Lawrence or what have you, to do some shopping or to go to the clinic, what have you. So we're doing it. We're just solely relying on people's coming out of pocket to take that particular van ride. So if it was publicly understood and publicly funded and maybe some collaboration between the communities and the province and the feds, and there's pockets of money out there, right? That's something that we can't uh, turn a blind eye to, is if we put it in that realm, it probably becomes an actually really popular option. Like, would someone rather to know all I have to do is go down to, say, the town hall at 10 o'clock on Thursday morning, hop on that van, I'll get to leave my own car at home, even if I pay a nominal fee, $3, $5, $10, whatever it is, to take the round trip, then I would imagine when people view it through that lens, it becomes a much more attractive option than even considering paying the full fare to a private sector operation, even though nothing wrong with what they're doing. They're doing great service. But I think if you just change the the structure, all of a sudden it becomes appetizing. Absolutely it does. And again, like that's why we need to start having these conversations and, and brainstorming and finding options and, you know, talking about how can we make this work and, and just educating as well on, you know, why it, public transportation is so important. We talk about the effects of climate change. If we can get less vehicles on the road and we have less emissions and people are doing it now at the cost of gas prices, they've started to carpool, you know, so, we're, you know, we we already have our heads in that space. We just need to further develop the thoughts and ideas and collaborate more. And I would suggest, Patty, and I would love it if it could happen. Um, 
I'd love for Deitra to be able to give you a call probably next week and talk about public transportation and the work that MNL is doing with our membership on finding solutions and talking about how public transportation can work in our municipalities. Absolutely. We've exchanged messages, and she's more than welcome to come on to get down to some of the finer points of how it can work. Uh, before we run out of time here, I look forward to speaking with you, uh, Deitra. Uh, is that how I pronounce your name properly? Ditra, yes. Ditra, okay. D-E-A-T-R-A, yep. Yeah, I just want to make sure I'm pronouncing it properly. Uh, yes. The conversation about regionalization is off to a rocky start, uh, I think. And there's, I think, a bit of a misunderstanding about what it could actually mean because it's not the same for every pocket of the province. And I've given out a couple of examples about starting with baby steps and just finding, you know, common ground where you can maybe advance the conversation. It's already in place in some communities. What do you think the next steps are? Because initially, certainly the LSDs, by and large, just rejected it out of hand. And a lot of that's probably because they didn't have enough detail to give it a thumbs up or down. What do you think next steps are, whether it be from your organization or the minister responsible? Because, you know, this has been discussed for decades with very little forward momentum. What do you think we need to do? Well, first thing, and what we've done right from the start is keep talking we need to keep communicating keep collaborating um, we again re you know re um reinforce the importance of regionalization at our symposium last week. Minister Howell was with us from the Department of Municipal and Provincial Affairs. Uh, the the uh, PMA president, Brian Hudson, was there and myself. We were on a panel. We talked about, spoke about the importance of regionalization. The minister reaffirmed her commitment and her department's commitment to moving regionalization forward. Um, and we you know, opened the floor to our membership. We had questions from the floor. We talked about it through the whole week, like every pocket you know, uh, that you went into. People were talking about regionalization, sharing examples of, of things that they're already doing. I think that's where we lose the sight sometime. Like we talk about, you know, oh, how regionalization, it's going to be difficult for us to do. And then, you know, you, you had uh, Mayor Andrews on this morning talking about how his municipality and municipalities in his area are involved in food security, transportation, health care. You looked at the, um, the health care um, rally that the Bjorn Peninsula hosted. That was all those communities in that area coming together sharing their voices and sharing their concerns and their enthusiasm on how important health care is to their region and what the loss of services would do to that region. We do it every day. Mayor Mike Doyle, I mean, you know, he's on constantly talking about how regionalization is working for that area, how they've come together. They're, they're sharing fire services. Um, nobody lost anything. They all gained particular skill sets and are enhanced those skill sets based on what they can offer and how they provide those services. So we're doing it in so many ways. Continuation of conversation is key, and that is the next steps. The minister is still meeting with LSDs and UIAs, um, and the conversations are happening, and we want to hear the questions, and we want to hear the concerns because unless we have all that information, we cannot make this the best plan and ensure that it is successful at the end of the day. Yeah, asking questions, even if it's, it's uh, like a pushback, that's perfect. 
That's exactly what we need to do. I'm happy to play a role on this program because if one mayor or representative of an LSD thinks that we're on the wrong track, well, let's get the concerns on the table so that they can be discussed, addressed. If they can be overcome, fine. If they are absolutely insurmountable, then that's something we can figure out once we understand what people's concerns are. I always appreciate your time this morning, Amy. Thank you. Yeah, actually, Patty, if I could just sure. have another minute or so. The reason I called this morning oh. is <laughs> Municipal Awareness Week. <laughs> And hey, listen, it, these conversations are all part of it. But what I, I, I really want to say a huge thank you to the municipal leaders in this province, our administrative staff, everybody who is doing the work every single day to provide services to our residents. Normally, after, you know, in May, we have Municipal Awareness Day, and you, it's barely a blip. You don't hear a whole lot because we're all just so busy and our staff are so busy that they don't have the time to just fit it all into one day. So when we signed the proclamation with the minister and with the PMA president last week at Symposium, we declared Municipal Awareness Week. And it has been a huge success. The social medias are blowing up. All of the communities are tweeting that they've signed the proclamation. There's showing pictures of contests that they've had. Mount Pearl had the name plowing contest. Um, we've had mayors for a day. I know Grand Falls, Windsor and Gander and several other communities have been showing videos all week, introducing our staff members, telling what the departments within our community and the town hall are responsible for. Um, and it's you know, it's so important. We need the week. We need to educate our residents on the services that we provide to them, the work that we do, and the importance of the work that we do. So a huge shout out to all municipal leaders and administrative staff who do this important work every single day. Here, here. Appreciate the time, Amy. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Sammy Cody. She's the president of MNL. Let's take a break. When, Mary, when we come back, Mary's in the queue to talk about covid don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Uh, welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number one. Good morning, Mary. You're on the air. How you doing, Patty? Doing okay, Mary. How you doing? I'm better than nothing. Okay. <laughs> Meanwhile. Yeah, go ahead. I just want to get this off my chest because it's been really bothering me. Okay. And I know you're not a psychiatrist, but as care goes. Now, this Dr. Hagee, it's time I think he should hang up his white coat. We all know we're not getting the true count of the COVID that's down here. No, but he, I don't think the minister says we are. Well, yeah, but like when he gives it out, he says 26 here, 46 there. Like, tell the... Tell them, like, what it is, like, if it's 150 a day, whatever, that we can, you know, understand and how to act when we go out in the public with our mask and whatever. I mean, I wear my mask constantly. But to say, like, we're not in bad shape, that now you know yourself, Patty, that's not true. Well, I know. I think the news uh, coverage is pretty clear. Like virtually every single story says uh, this is not a clear understanding of the prevalence of COVID given the change in testing protocols. So you're right. The, there's some guesstimate work being done. Like uh, there's a mathematical biologist at Memorial University that says whatever the PCR case counts given out by public health, you can probably times that by at least six. 
So that's the prevalence of COVID. And if you hear from Dr. Fitzgerald, she says things along these lines, is that you don't need to know where the, uh, the virus is because it's everywhere. So I don't know how, what to make of all of those things, but we really have no earthly idea how many cases are out there. None. Uh, well, I love you for saying that. And, and can I say one more thing? You can say whatever you like. Then, uh, <laughs> no, I better not. Uh, okay, <laughs> I'll take that back. <laughs> this, here, this here is another thing, Patty. What really irks me, yeah. I mean, I know everybody's come home here, right? Uh-huh. Okay, now, Dr. F- Dr. Fury, Premier Fury, excuse me, this is what really gets my goat. He spent $600,000 on NASCAR, and there's some seniors around here, and I know them personally, that they cannot afford, they can't make up their mind whether they pay, get their drugs or food. Can they not give a bit of that money to the seniors that are really desperate instead of a NASCAR? What's the big deal about sitting in a car? Yeah, interesting one. Okay, so there's always going to be a debate or discussion about where government spends any money, regardless of how much it is. Ten bucks, million bucks, and in this case, $600,000 over three years to have a partnership with the Pinty Series, NASCAR. You know, okay, so let's just use a couple of examples. When there was tax credits and monies that flew, floated towards, say, the Republic of Doyle, it worked. When the city of St. John's put some money into the effort to bring the briar to town, it worked. We got back an awful lot more than we spent. And that's the concept here, I guess, anyway, Mary, as we're told, is it's economic activity that's generated by these types of events coming. And sometimes it absolutely bears out to be true. So if I remember correctly, the provincial government said they would anticipate somewhere in the neighborhood of $5.4 million in economic activity because of these races. I don't know if that's going to come to pass exactly on those numbers, but like in Canada Games. I went to the Canada Games in Manitoba when my, one of my sons participated. They generated $17 million in economic activity over two weeks, and their investment was in and around a million bucks. So sometimes we get back a little bit when these types of uh, events or races or concerts or uh, conferences, conventions come to town. So I, I, I kind of see the merit in trying to bring more people here. Like there's a big number of people even come as members of NASCAR, the race teams. I mean, if they stay in a hotel and spend a few bucks at the pub in the restaurant and at some of the shops, there's going to be economic activity. That's kind of how I come at it. What do you think of that? I'm glad you said sometimes, sweetheart. But, like, now another one. As they got all this money, there's people that's got to pay for the test kits, right? Yeah. Like, we got a couple here we keep, like, for our own use. But I feel bad if somebody comes to my door and they say they haven't got the money to get it, Right. That should be free down here also. I don't dispute that. So the rapid test kit in many parts of the country, you can get them for free. Yes. And I've never really had a firm understanding as to why it's different here. I suppose it's just a matter of whether or not the province wants to pick up an additional tab because the federal government paid for the kits. And we get 1.4% of the kits that are delivered to the feds. They come to us. The province has distributed over 5 million of these kits at this point, healthcare workers, long-term care facilities in the province's schools. So well, when, even when school that. closes, yeah, like when school closes and we no longer have to provide schools tests, Maybe there's every opportunity for them to put them free, whether it be at the library or uh, coffee shops or at the retail shops. I don't know, but there'll be very little excuse once the school's closed not to free up those tests. Okay, then, Patty, it's been a pleasure today, you know. It's really nice to have you on, Mary. 
Thank you very much. You stay safe. Same to you. Take but care. I mean what I said. Okay, honey. All right. All the best. <laughs> okay. Bye bye. Uh, yeah. I'm again. I know I'm in the minority when we have anything that's regarding government monies, but you know, like even in the city, money spent on the briar worked out famously. Money spent on some of the TV and film production has worked out famously. You know, the industry that used to be one, two, five, ten million dollars worth of production, it's over a hundred million dollars now. The Briar generated in excess of ten million dollars of activity just in the city itself. So I know there's always places that people would wish the government had more focus and spent more money. Seniors related matters or otherwise. But uh, sometimes bringing a few people in and they might even come back. That's another part of it. And I know you probably think I'm absolutely dead wrong on that one. And that's fine. Uh, give us a call. We'll talk about that or anything else. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go. Line number two, Keith, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I'm a first-time caller. How are you doing today? Uh, welcome to the show. I'm doing fine. How are you doing? Uh, not too bad. Uh, uh, i got a question for you. Sure. Uh, it's been, uh, my voice is going a bit here on me. It's been a while since I've been down to Mile 1 Stadium, uh, uh, back a couple of years ago or whatever. During the hockey game, you were able to go outside for a cigarette. I think it was outside Section 107. Uh, uh, I got tickets for ZZ Top for tonight. I'm going down. Uh, with a friend to see them or whatever, and uh, uh, somebody told me or whatever that you weren't allowed to smoke down at Mile 1 anymore, even though that they had an outside area, this area that you were able to go outside to because of the uh, COVID-19 restrictions. Uh, Pretty well, most of the restrictions have been lifted now, and I don't understand why Mile 1 isn't allowing people that would like to have a cigarette to be able to go back out into that area to have a cigarette, not to interfere with anybody else that's within the stadium. Because now if you go out for a cigarette, uh, the deem you have gone or whatever, you're not allowed back in. Yeah, that's right. If you walk out, you can't come out back in. That's absolutely true. And it's not recent. I mean, I think that decision was put in place, if I'm not mistaken, the fall of 2020. So that's been that way okay. for quite a long time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I was wondering or whatever. They, I called the box office. And they said that they were one of the last ones to lift that restriction or whatever. And uh, uh, I wasn't sure whether there was any word or whether whether they're, they're planning on lifting it or whatever because of the COVID-19. Because we, you can go downtown to a bar or whatever and go in for a drink and listen to music. Well, if you go out for a cigarette or whatever, they'll allow you back in or whatever. Why aren't they doing that at mile one as well, right? I don't know the answer to that question or if they have a timeline in mind where they're going to revisit this, but it's been it's absolutely since the fall of 2020, if I remember correctly, because I go to Mary Brown Center every now and then. So, yeah, if there's a change coming, I don't know much about that, Keith, but I know people who are involved in St. John's Sports Entertainment, and if there's an update coming to the smoking policy, like you can't even use a, an e-cigarette inside. Well, you can't use an e-cigarette inside most places, I would think. But, uh, yeah. yeah, that policy is in place, and the time for it to be lifted, not sure. Yeah. Okay, then. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Listen, are you going to see ZZ Top or Cheap Trick? 
uh, both or whatever. Cheap Trick's opening for ZZ Top. Yeah, I, I guess it was a kind of a uh, silly way to ask the question. Do you like both yeah. bands? Or are you looking forward to seeing both bands, or is that ZZ Top is the draw? Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing both bands or whatever. I know uh, Cheap Trick got uh, uh, nominated into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which was uh, well overdue or whatever, right? So I'm really looking to see in both of them. Yeah, I had a buddy of mine see uh, the show in Halifax uh, whenever it was a few days ago. He said he really enjoyed it. He said it was great. So uh, hopefully you enjoy the concert tonight, Keith. Okay, thanks very much. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Take good care of yourself. Okay, you too. All right, bye-bye. Let's keep rolling. Line number one. Kevin, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, Nice one, Anna. Yeah, listen, it's gorgeous out, as it was yesterday, and like I said, it was blistering hot. Well, I mean, I consider it blistering hot. I'm not really built for the heat, but I got up to close the window around 2 o'clock, froze. <laughs> so it uh, looks like another nice one on tap today. That means that the gardening that my wife would like to see attended to is going to have to happen. Oh, boy, we all got our chores. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Uh, and yeah, you just had a young lady on there from the FNL, or whatever, and uh, I'd like to put a question to her and the minister, boy, you know me and local service districts, I'm all with them, stay away from the municipalities. Would the municipalities be keen to go into these local service districts and charge them no property tax? So they have no, no property tax, no lien on them. But these people just pay for the services, their fair share of whatever services that are going in. Would they be so fast to go after it, I wonder? Well, I, I don't know. I'm not even 100% sure what the question means. Uh, but well, I do... Uh, uh, you sorry. know, as soon as you become uh, part of a municipality, you get dinged with property tax. Well, one of the things that's said uh, is itemized in the report is that it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone's going to pay the same uh, level of taxation based on the types of services they receive. So I think that's an important component of the conversation. I'll go on to add that property tax, in my opinion, is the most regressive form of taxation you could possibly ever dream up. You know, there's just got to be a better way to fund municipalities, to offer those services to the residents. And property tax is just such a strange old setup in the first place. Oh, it is so. Patty, I mean, listen, how many times have I said that you work your whole life to buy it and put it around you, and then uh, at the end of the day, the municipality comes in and starts taxing on it, and they have no vested interest. So, uh, you know, only for that... You know, and they can't justify uh, basing their service on it because they're supposed to be equal to all. That's the reason to have a council. So, anyway, sir, I, I could spend a day on that one, but I'll just go on to the next one, okay. <laughs> which which will be quick, Patty. Uh, as government now coming out and saying they're going to make the PUB more transparent. Yeah, that, that's what they're saying. So, uh, can you trust them? Can you trust who to do what? government to ensure that the PUB are going to be transparent? Well, it's a change to legislation, so there's only so much you can do, but when the legislation reads a certain way, then there's no wiggle room. That'll just be the way it is. So if it's the establishment of public hearings on the setting of fuels, or if it's about a clear demonstration of how they arrived at a certain decision, the legislation will drive it. So this is not going to be a suggestion. This is going to be the law. Oh, it is, but it's funny now. They're, they're making them be, and, and I agree with it. Don't get me wrong. 
they should make the legislation to uh, to enforce themselves when they came in and all about openness and transparency in government. And I haven't seen a whole lot of it, especially with the Rothschild report and all that. So, uh, you know, it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that they're forcing them guys when they promised and their main mandate coming in, openness and transparency, and uh, we got shut doors and redacted documents whenever you get one. You know me, I, I want to look at everything, right? I really do, and I try to talk about these things all the time. From where I sit, the government, whatever we're talking, liberals or Tories or whoever holds the seat of government, it would be in their best interest if they allowed these decisions to be made every single time at Michael Harvey's office, the privacy commissioner. He should be the person that tells us whether or not something is actually client solicitor privilege. He should be the one to tell me if something is actually commercially sensitive. He should be the one to tell me if something is proprietary. Not the government. And I just agree. because you discuss it in cabinet shouldn't automatically just mean, well, it's a cabinet document. That's it. We can't get a look at it. And that's one of the articles in the Privacy Act deals with that specifically. But even not Rothschild or anything else, Michael Harvey has no want to hurt the province, no want to betray commercial sensitivity, no want to shag up the bidding process for any of our assets. So he's the person to make those decisions, in my estimation. So... I don't know why politicians lean on that because it'd be such a good look. They'll say, "Okay, well, you make it a, a, a put in a request for information. It'll go directly through the privacy commissioner's office first. They'll make the decision on our behalf." So I think the upside there politically would be massive. Oh, I agree with you 100 percent, Patty. I mean, it's the same now as the NASCAR thing. Okay, if they're planning on making some money, well, come out and let the people know. Look, guys, this is what we made on this, and now we're going to use this money for this purpose. Well, show us, tell us, you know, let us know, keep us in the loop. Yeah, well, I think that can be assigned to a bunch of these conversations, for instance. You know, like, even if it's as fundamental as uh, the carbon tax, we'll say, just that just popped into my head. Yep. If it's supposed to be used for al alternate forms of energy investment, uh, okay. If it's going to be for installation of fast-charging stations up and up the Bonavista Peninsula, down the Burren Peninsula, up to GNP, whatever, okay. So then we can keep an eye on it. Then we'll have a quarterly report or an annual report that here's how much was brought in and here's where we spent it like we told you we would, as opposed to straight into government coffers, general funds, and then who knows. Exactly, and and that's where people are getting disgusted and frustrated and everything else, Patty. I mean, you're not, you don't know, not until after the fact, and the majority of the people don't agree with it. So, I mean, just, it, it's crazy the way they're doing things, and we have a lot of smart people, yourself included. You know, why, they, why don't they sit down with a group of people around the table and throw out some ideas and say, well, boy, this seems to be the persistent thing that's coming up. Fair enough. All right, Patty, you have a good one, my friend. A great too. weekend, and uh, good luck with the gardening. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Kevin. All right. <laughs> You're all right. Bye-bye. Okay, let's take a break. Don't go away. The Workday winds down with Greg Smith in the drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Uh, let's go. Line number two. Art, you're on the air. Morning, Paddy. How are you? Not bad, you? Uh, not bad. Nice day. Mm -hmm. I said it's a nice day. I said yes, sir. Oh, uh, yeah, Paddy, I got a, like, something real personal issue happened to me here today uh, through, through uh, social services there, right? Now, give me a minute. I'll explain. Now, I got a call yesterday from someone from their office, and uh, they noticed that I wasn't in their files. 
before because I was never there before because I never asked for nothing before. Anyway, we talked and uh, do wanted to straighten up my bill situation kind of thing. So I confided in her of a personal matter, right? Very serious personal matter. And uh, she said that this person was going to call me today regarding getting my bills and stuff straightened out kind of thing, right? And uh, so he had a few questions and I answered his questions. And then he asked me directly about personal matter that I disclosed yesterday. I took, I trusted this person and I told her something personal, right? And then now uh, they were only supposed to call me about straightening out my bills. And then at the last question, he said, the last question, he said, what about your, I'm not going to say what, but the personal matter and it's very personal matter. And I don't think uh, that should have been involved there. Was your personal matter have some impact on your bills? It had, uh, pers- uh, had uh, something to do with my personal uh, mental health and my physical health. Okay. Uh, and I don't want to pry because it's none of my business, Eric. No, no. What I, like, you mean, why did what, if I... Uh, I'm not, I'm not telling you know. I'm not telling you what happened exactly. But if you no, really no. want to know, I could take. No, no, no. I, I, I don't need to pry. I, I don't need to pry, Art. That's not my intention here no, whatsoever. No, no. Okay, just hold on. Um, so, why did you offer that information to the first person you talked to? Because they said, you know, I don't know, Patty. They were talking to me and they were being nice to me, and it was the only one I heard from in the past six or eight months from their office, and she only noticed that. She only noticed that I, she couldn't find me nowhere in the system, and she okay. thought it strange. So she called me. Okay. And she asked me what was going on because how come I wasn't working. And I explained to her why I wasn't working, and I divulged uh, of something of a very personal nature. And, uh, I, you know, and we talked, and it was only about finances after that. And then when this person called me today and asked me three questions regarding the, the stuff that I need for requirements, right? And then they went on and said one more thing, is, and then they went and asked me directly about my personal issue, which I don't think that should have went that far. Fair enough. I understand. Now, I'm very upset. I just had to leave, walk, leave the house. I was just walking down the beach with me and my dog now, just trying to uh, get a hold of this. So, so I don't understand why someone would go. If your friend said to you, or even not even a friend, if somebody devolved something to you, you know, and you wouldn't just go in and tell it around the coffee maker, would you? If someone asked me to keep something confidential, I'm pretty good at that. Well, if, if you knew what I it was, Patty, you would you would understand. You wouldn't have to be told. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't really feel like talking uh, about people and some of their very personal concerns behind their back. No, it's not really my bag, to be honest. No, but, but this is governmental, like, you know, from one person to another. Like, this person I understand. no reason to ask me about that personal matter. It was only supposed to be regarding finances. Point taken. So, Art, when you said that you didn't appreciate that uh, bit of knowledge being shared at the department, what was the reaction from the second caller? Well, the second caller, well, uh, he, he I, well, when he asked me that, I said to him, I said, I, I don't think you should be asking me that. And I got my, I, I just started to get all upset inside. And I told him, I said, you should know, you had no right to ask me that. And I said, you have a good day and, and have a good week and whatever, goodbye. And I just hung up and then I called your show. Because that, Patty, I, 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 this is blowing me away, but like, I don't, you, your doctor don't go out and tell the body in the office, so, and then he come up and meet you. And I'm like, hey, what about your problem? 
Yeah, I, I, no bearing on the questions he had to ask me was financial, not about my personal issues. Okay, I mean I understand where you're coming from. I I wouldn't want that to be a topic of conversation inside that office, and I don't know how much information even belongs in my file necessarily. Uh, hopefully, the walk with the dog to the beach will help you clear your head, Art. And I appreciate the time. Take good care of yourself. Have a nice weekend. Yeah, okay, you do. All right, bye bye. Okay, let's roll. Line number one. Good morning, Marlene. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm great today. Thanks. How about you? I'm pretty good. I just wanted to take this opportunity to uh, come on today because we're launching a fundraiser called Coast to Coast for Camp Day, and it's for the Tim Hortons Foundation camps. What happens? Um, What's and, going on? Well, it's, a, it's in part partnership with the Trans Canada Trail, and anybody can join for free. And we need two kinds of people. We need those that have um, uh, like to get out, hike, bike paddle, run, walk, however you want to mobilize yourself and get some fresh air outside uh, to help us cross the uh, Trans-Canada Trail. And then in the process, we will be also raising uh, funds to help with the Tim Hortons Foundation camps. It sounds good to me. Why Tim Hortons uh, camps? Uh, if I understand correctly, it's for underserved youth an opportunity to go to the Tim Hortons camp and they do all sorts of life skill learning and what have you. So why did you select Tim Hortons camp? Well, I'm a Tim Hortons franchisee, but I'm also a big believer in the foundation camps and the camp programming is not just about camp like some people think. Um, it's five years of learning leadership skills and at the end of those five years the participants do have the opportunity to be able to um, get some funding to go to university through scholarship programs um, so it's like a life-changing thing for a lot of kids that do have that opportunity to get to camp and it's open to kids across the country um, the trans canada trail goes through every single province um, and territory and it allows us to connect from coast coast so we started it last year when we were in the midst of covid and there was a um, few ways that we could actually raise funds for important charities and this was one that we came up with that kind of united us from one end to the other um, for a really great cause like it's it's a cause that affects uh, youth across the country i think it's brilliant uh and i i know a little bit about it but here's a story and i'll get your reaction there's a fellow I know who's in business and owns his own uh, business, and they were hiring for a very specific professional, and part of the resume from one applicant was to say that they're a graduate of Tim Hortons camp. And my buddy, Annie's Human Resources uh, Director, asked as to why that was an important feature on their CV and went on to give a really elaborate answer about just how it really helped them become who they are and get them through post-secondary and, you know, you know, maybe some of the old jargon associated with reach your dreams and fulfill your, your uh, abilities, all these types of things. Got the job. <laughs> it is, yeah, and it's a hundred percent. I have had kids here in St. John's that we have sponsored when they were ten years old to go to camp for the first time. That graduated and went to university. That I've met in um, afterwards as young adults who are now teachers, 
nurses, um, have graduated from university in a lot of capacities that would never have had that opportunity previous to. One young young woman actually told me that the first year that she went to camp, she was living in car with her mom and she got all the way through university and is a leader in what she does today. So it really does uh, change lives and the people that are affected, um, the people that are directly involved really can see that. And sometimes the public, when you buy that coffee on camp day, upsize. Make sure you go from a small to a medium, a medium to a large. Buy one for your neighbor. That's really important. But hey, get out in the next eight weeks now until camp day and do some uh, do some hiking, biking, paddling, however you want to do it. Put your Strava app on and you can register online. It's completely, absolutely free. If you, if you can fundraise for us, that's great. And uh, if you're just out there to get some, some healthy activity and exercise, that's okay too. How do I, if I wanted to be involved in your fundraiser, is there a way to follow along or is there something specific that I need to do? Yeah, so there is a website. Um, it's kind of a lengthy little um, uh, website, but it's Tim Hortons Foundation Camps Coast to Coast for Camp Day. And it's the actual um, website address is thcf.akaraisin.com backslash UI backslash Coast to Coast 2022. I'll never forget it. <laughs> and I really hope you do it. I really hope that lots of people take the opportunity just to register. Um, and let's let's show them how far we can go in Newfoundland. Like there's 1,220 kilometers across this province. We added 328 with the East Coast Trail this year. So if you love to hike the trail and you're doing it anyway, put it on and help us get kilometers. Uh, good on you, Marlene. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. There we go. There's an interesting fundraiser for Tim Horton's Camp Day. And that story about the young person who gave a lot of credence and credit to their to where they find themselves now after the post-secondary, saying, you know, a lot of it uh, relates all the way back to Tim Horton's camp. That's a pretty cool story. I was, yeah, anyway. How are we doing on the phone there, Fonts? Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, tell me some good news or bring up a topic of your choosing right after this. Do not go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Uh, Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Cyril. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Yes, I'm calling in about the the crab issue and the plants. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, I say, well, I've been uh, I fished crab in that army life. I retired there a few years ago, and uh, we're talking about just a handful of uh, fishing boats now left in this area. We got uh, some of them shipping to some companies is doing pretty good, uh, but c- still can't sail when they like. They're on uh, pretty strict uh, sailing issues, and we got some more is just barely getting out. Uh, they put out their pots the 22nd of April, and I'm hearing this morning uh, they, uh, they're they gone again. Now, that's only two trips since the 22nd of April they've been allowed to make. And we all know when you get up to the June month, uh, you have issues of South Shore crab. Uh, now those boats uh, got a hundred uh, over 100,000 pounds of crab to catch, and... Uh, 
and only got uh, 15, 14, 15,000, uh, well, less than 20 landed. And uh, I was talking to a guy yesterday evening. Uh, I said, I not going to grab no. He said, our uh, our turn was to go on Monday. And uh, if he had some issues there, he couldn't go. And, uh, well, that's it for us now. He said, until maybe next week to another fishing company. So uh, I know you have um, some companies saying this morning uh, no more licensing, but uh, uh, this has been on the go now for two or three years. Uh, you know, uh, people, the best kind of weather. We've had some real, real, real good weather. And those uh, those guys there uh, kicking the guide rails on the wife can't go. So I think something has to be done. What is it? They can't go because of just trip limits? Yeah, well, they got their trip limits. They're telling them that uh, the plants, well, uh, now uh, they've had COVID. So since the 22nd of April, if everybody uh, in their community, wherever those people is working in the plants, you know, uh, that's a long time. Give you four or five days and and you're over it. But they've been using that issue. Well, uh, uh, this is what some of the plants are doing. Okay, this this is good weather today. And... uh, more than likely, they can't go. So they'll keep phoning the phone and can I make a trip? Can I make a trip? Uh, yeah, looks like next Wednesday. But they know, and the, and the fishermen know, next Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, there's going to be uh, 30, 40 uh, knots of wind. So they know that they know that you're not going to go out. So they'll, uh, they'll say, well, that's your turn to go in. So the, a lot of those uh, fish plants, uh, uh, apparently they must have too much crab to uh, to process. Like we, I, I've after Aaron, I got uh, relations down around Bonavista Bay. Uh, uh, same thing going on down there. Matter of fact, there's people around my own community ships uh, ships in those places, and they uh, they're the same thing. Uh, they get a trip this week, and then there's another five or six days before they can get out again. And uh, uh, well, I'm hearing uh, a lot of the plants is having a, having a lot of crab coming in from up Nova Scotia. That's their problems. Yeah, I've heard that too. I can't confirm it, uh, no. nor can I confirm any crab being dumped. But you know, I suppose that's the the rationale behind trip limits, anyways. But you know, especially when you see a thirty percent increase in the total allowable catch, all of a sudden uh, plants that are geared up and have the staff or the staff on hand to uh, Process the amount of crab coming in the door. I suppose it's a much different quintal of fish the last two years, with forty-six percent increase over two years. But it's not necessarily working for the harvesters. That much we can tell for sure. Which well, I think is no, actually uh, that's, that's very true. The, the harvesters and, and wherever you go, because well, like I said, I was in uh, in the fishing industry. Uh, matter of fact, uh, uh, put out uh, the first crab pots uh, around in this area when they when they come up with those licenses. Matter of fact, my brother lobbied and helped to get uh, uh, those licenses years ago. And we, in fishing in this area, women had a lot of our lives. And, and uh, like, I'm in everywhere fishing around his own. And uh, I know a lot of people, and everybody is having the same issues. Okay. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's a big problem. I know that uh, uh, every plant wants to get uh, so many hours and things running in, uh, in their communities as they can. But... Uh, Bumboy, the next thing, when uh, you get this soft shell or uh, things coming, that, that crab is not going to be landed. 
you know, I'm, I'm surprised I haven't had televarias now already because what happens that uh, if fishermen is uh, fishing in a certain area and they start getting soft shell, they uh, they got a grid, uh, there's a grid, you know, the pattern they uses. So the the they are cut out. They say, don't take it, your pots out of that area too much soft shell. So, um, like I said, I'm surprised I haven't had television already. And, uh, well, none of the boats, like, fish out of those communities. I, like, I'm up halfway up Trinity Bay here. Uh, they have to go to Catalina, or they fish out of St. John's. All the bigger boats is where they fish. And, uh, you know, uh, you you take, uh, like I said, uh, one of the boats here uh, uh, goes two weeks when you go out. Your pots is all tore up, uh, uh, dragged, and uh, staff boys gone. Uh, you're losing gear, and... And I'm going to tell you, all the deuce has cost the fishermen a lot more money. So uh, I don't know uh, what they're going to do. But uh, like I said, back, back years ago when we did have, because there's the same amount of licenses as it always was, but when when we uh, fished one time uh, licensed boat, I was on 120000 We never had those problems, you know. Cyril, wouldn't this be a little bit early in the season or the year for the crab to bolt? Uh, no, not really. Okay. No, like I said, I'm surprised that I haven't had, had to, especially when June month rolls in. So you you take uh, take boats only got after crab. Well, most all the boats say now only got after crab landed. That uh, uh, and that's only to a certain company. We got two or three more companies. Some fellas got two trips in, and like I said, there's boats gone now only on that second trip. I got the catch over on a thousand pound of crab. So they're going to go into June month, and uh, if if they keeps doing what they're doing to them, they're going to go into July month. Because, like I said, the 22nd of April, that's when most of the boats sail out of those communities there. So I don't know what's going to be the end result. So uh, given the, well, we, uh, the, my brother and I, we, we fished uh, years ago. We did ship up in uh, up in St. Mary's. Uh, that's where our crab went. Uh, we shipped up there for about 10 years. And uh, didn't have a problem, uh, uh, you know, a good little place, and uh, never had no issues. Have I come back? That well, you can't go today. Uh, we always, uh, when we got the good weather, we went. And uh, just getting back to the to the boats too. The uh, most of all the boats uh, around here now is uh, like they're forty-five footers. They can't go out in thirty, forty knots of wind. The uh, that's just a disaster waiting them. Yeah, sure. Absolutely, and that's what happens is harvesters feel like they've been possibly forced to make bad decisions about going out in the weather because they've got to get their gear and or try to get the uh, quota before the, in this case, before they go soft and they molt. Uh, Sarah, I appreciate the time and your understanding of the industry. Anything else like, you'd like to say? Yes, I'd like to speak one more thing now about uh, about all the garbage and everything we know that's come home Yeah, Well, we don't have to have a come home yet, have garbage kicking around. But there's a lot of people throwing stuff out through the windows of cars and everything, and uh, certainly a lot of properties with a lot of old uh, stuff lying around in them, uh, Patty. And uh, like I said, we don't have to have come home yet, but uh, uh, I think it's time for some people to, to clean up their act. Oh, I've, <laughs> no arguments here. Look, it cost about $80,000 to do the uh, May cleanup last year on the Outer Ring Road. It's a crying shame that we've got to even do it. It's good that it's getting done, but my goodness, whether it be securing your load or stop flicking stuff out the window when you're done with your coffee or your burger or anything else, because it's just, 
it's just amazing how many people are willing to behave like that. Uh, Sarah, we're off to the break. I appreciate making time for the program. Yeah, I was going to say this. We have a, a good many areas on our road, early bus turnarounds and places with a plows and everything. People must just pack there just to clean out their cars. Because, like, I, I, I've stopped there a few times and uh, for different reasons and just walk around, look out over the edge of the shoulders of the road. It's, it's just ridiculous what people do. That it is. Yeah. Okay. Appreciate Have the time, Cheryl. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, last break of the morning, last break of the week. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Uh, welcome back to the show. What happened to Wayne there? See if we can get him back as well. Let's go to line number three. Lewis, you're on the air. Hi, how are you doing today? Um, doing okay, thank you. How are you? Okay, good, good. Listen, buddy, I got a... I don't know. We got a problem here, and I can't understand it. It's kind of it's bothersome. Uh, our grandson is twelve year old. He got one of his COVID shots. Can't get the second one because all the drugstores got is Moderna, mm-hmm. and they won't give that to kids at that age. You know, he's getting the adult dose, I believe, now at twelve. But now they're saying they're going to lift the mask mandate in school on the twenty fourth. And, like, what would the other option be where we can't, like, he can't get, his mother can't get him his other needle. She's been trying. And they're saying the only place you can get it up here, now we're out of Stephenville area, and they uh, they said the drugstores is the only place that's giving them out now, and we can't get it. What would the other option be to keep him out of school there? I don't know, but the second shot available started on, like, the 25th of April, all hands were able to get that additional Pfizer boost. So simply because they don't have a vaccine clinic near where you live, that's the reason why you can't get it? Well, now, see, like, where his birthday came into play, his mother waited, uh, I think his birthday might be in March. So instead of getting the first one sooner, she would wait a couple of weeks for him to get the adult dose at 12. They can get it. And before, like, you know, the time lapsed where he could get the second one, time had lapsed. But she just assumed that she'd be able to bring him in and get him a second one, but that's long gone now. It's uh, like she's been trying to get it for him, and uh, like we're, we're just wondering where we could turn with this. It's an excellent question. So, if you're between the ages of 12 and 29, it's eight weeks after your first dose. After the age of 30, it's 28 yeah. days and up to four months, I think, if I remember those yeah. those uh, intervals correctly. I don't know where to point you. What what's strange here? is that the government has gone an awful long way to promote the vaccine and the vaccination programs. So if that's the case, then they should make it pretty easy for families who choose to have their children vaccinated. Well, that's what I was thinking, Patty. Like, you know, we're not like, uh, like their mother wouldn't let them go to school. Like she kept them out of school. Like, you know, when they started lifting some of the restrictions before they got their needles, like she was she'd being very careful with them. But anyway, uh, I was just hoping maybe some of your listeners might have, uh, like, you know, have an idea somewhere we could go. I hope there is, because I'm looking at the only other option would be to keep them home from school. And God, it, you know, the, the end coming on the end of May, I'd hate to do that for the rest of the year, but there's not much of another choice because 
now that they're lifting the mask mandate, it's really cause for concern, really. And I hadn't followed along because I've been busy here. And I was actually about to look up what happened with Dr. Fitzgerald's announcement regarding masks in school. So other than dealing directly with public health and using the government COVID hub website or a call in the Western Health toll-free number, I wouldn't know where to point you, to be honest, Lewis. And, Patty, i got one more quick thing for you. And I, uh, uh, I'm 67. I've got COPD. I've had it for quite a few years in some of the places I worked in and whatever. Okay. Now, uh, see, I got the Pfizer. Uh, I got my first booster, and that, uh, like, I was at the first of the year. I went to try and get the second booster because they say Pfizer, after so many months, like, you know, it wears thin after so many months, and they're advising you should get the second booster. Unfortunately so. Yes, sir. Well, now, I've been trying, and they're telling me under 70-year-old, I can't get it under 70. And I I called every number, the helpline, and they're saying, no, under 70, you can't get it. And I'm, and I'm thinking, if I end up in the hospital, it's going to cost a lot more for that me to be in the hospital with this than what it would cost to give me the booster. Uh, I'm wondering if there's a place where I could buy this, like buy the booster. I'd be more than willing to buy it if there's a place I can get it, because I'm, like, where I got COP, I... I'm really paying close attention. I don't go very far since this virus started out. But uh, there's no way I can get the second booster because I'm under 70. Yeah, and that has been the cutoff. Same thing with some arbitrary, well, I don't know if arbitrary is a fair word, but some of the age cutoffs that they've made, whether it be for access to Paxlovid or access to your second booster, whatever the case may be. But uh, as far as I know, Lewis, you cannot buy a dose. And I actually You can buy it. Pardon me? You can buy it. No, that's what I'm saying. You cannot buy it. I don't. I don't oh, think it's God. legal to buy it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You can buy a PCR test, but you can't buy a dose of the vaccine. Okay. All right. Well, listen, buddy. I, I I appreciate your time. Have a good weekend. With that, I'll let you go. The same to you, Lewis. Take good care of yourself. Okay. Take care, buddy. Right, bye bye. Now I didn't know what was going to go on with the. Uh, the mask mandate inside school. So Lewis filled me in a tidbit of information I did not have on hand or in mind, and I just seen an email flash across about. COVID hysteria and vaccines and stuff. People are choosing whether or not to vaccinate their children. The only rules in place, period, in this country are over the age of 18. That's it. The end. So if people are choosing to do it, unless they're doing freedom wrong, maybe I'm, you know, confused, but... Anywho, all right, uh, good show, good week of shows, to be honest, and we really appreciate the support that the program gets. So for all of the listeners, callers, emailers, and tweeters, you are all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning, right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.